Good morning. We're back into our sermon series in, I guess last week we were too, in First uh, and Second Samuel. We're in Second Samuel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along in there, that's where we'll be today. Uh, we're still looking at lessons from leaders from the chapter chapter number 1 in First Samuel all the way to where we're at today and all the way through the end of Second Samuel. We've been looking at leaders and what they've done good, how we can mimic them or mirror them in our own lives, and the mistakes that they made. How can we learn? from those and then maybe not make the same mistakes. Uh, and I think for me, at least, it's been really beneficial, this sermon series. So I hope you're enjoying it. A lot of fun things to learn uh, in First and Second Samuel. And so I am glad that you are here today as we continue to move forward. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Second Samuel chapter 7, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 29. Uh, if I say to you, what is the difference between a house and a home? What would you say? People that dwell in it. Okay. People that dwell in it. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Okay. A house of, is made of wood and stone, but only love can make a home. Okay. I like that one. Anybody else? I mean, I think they both nailed it on the head. It's kind of where I was going uh, today. It's, it's, it's a simple answer. A lot of times, and again, we could get into arguments, but the idea of like a house, and when we walk through our house, it's, it's wood, it's, it's sheetrock, and it's carpet, and you decide, will this work for my family? And, and then once you kind of move in, and, and the family that's there, and the emotion uh, that goes along with it, that's the home. Uh, that, to me, that's kind of where I fell this week as we were prepping for this sermon. Uh, and in today's text, we're going to see this house language, the home language, house, home, familial language throughout it that's going to help us understand this important characteristic of God, which again, if you want life changed, if you want your life to be changed, learning more about God is the way to do it, right? And then you try to apply those characteristics to your own. God makes his home among his people, okay? God makes his home among his people. So if you're taking notes, you might want to jot that down. This passage here in scripture, where we're going to see that God makes his home among his people, this isn't just any passage in scripture either. Now, we preached through First and Second Samuel, uh, I don't know if it was 10 years ago or so, uh, so I remember studying it, I remember going through it, I remember loving it, I studied it when I was back in Bible college, uh, you know, so I remember some of those things, but this is one of those passages that kind of sticks with you, okay? Second Samuel chapter 7. It's the longest recorded monologue by God since the days of Moses. It's about 197 words that God is going to give to Nathan, a prophet, to give to David. Uh, the theologian Brueggemann calls this the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus. And in fact, he says, it's the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. So when we were looking at this passage, we're like, this is an awesome passage. There's so much good stuff in it. Pastor Kevin and I were praying over, we were working through it, we were reading, we were studying up, and we're like, man, there is so much good in this. We even talked about splitting it into two weeks. There was so much stuff there. Um, because this is a great 
great chapter. So the first half, we're going to see God's recorded message to David. But on the second half, David almost uses the exact number of words, 198, to talk to God, to praise God, to worship God in his response. Because David knows that a response, a grace-filled response to the grace that we receive from God is vital. And this text includes a promise or covenant that God makes with David. So when you look at God's word, you can find seven covenants. And today we're going to be looking at, the, we'll just show you a little slide on this. God is going to make his home among his people. And he has, from the beginning, made covenants with those people. So we have these lists of, uh, or we have these covenants here. And the word covenant is not used in this text but everybody knows this is the Davidic covenant. This is the passage they go to, 2 Samuel 7. Uh, there's covenant language used throughout of it. Um, and, and so we see that, that God is giving this covenant, this promise to David and ultimately to his descendants and even you and I, the rest of his church. So as we go through this... Um, We'll see a lot of that. Now, I know sometimes some people get their feathers ruffled with the idea of covenants. There's some disagreements on some covenants. We're not going to worry about that today. That's for another time. We can talk more about covenants um, and, and that sort of thing. We don't want to be divisive today. We want to just look at what God's word is coming out. So this isn't a study on all the covenants that are listed there. This is more of how does this play into what God is saying here in Second Samuel uh, because some of God's covenants were to Israel. They were only to Israel. Okay? Doesn't mean that there's not application when we read that, that we don't see God truths in those covenants that we can apply to our lives. But some of the promises that are given in covenants are not to you and I. They were specifically for Israel. And so again, as a church body, we want to be really careful as we're looking at God speaking to his people, what applies to us uh, directly and what applied to them, but probably still has some application to you and I because of those, uh, of those truths about God. So example here, up there you'll see uh, the one right above the Davidic is the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, it, by its nature, it was conditional. If you honored me, God said, if you honor my law, God will honor you. God will take care of you. That's what he said to Moses, okay? There was a condition placed on that. Some of his are unconditional, right? Um, and, and, and so we'll see those uh, throughout scripture also. The other one we wanted to talk about is the land covenant. It was conditional. If Israel obeys God, they're going to possess the promised land that God gave them. If not, there was going to be fighting and there would be enemies that would take over part of the territories and, and there'd be all this warring going on, right? They'd be driven out of the land that God had said, this is going to be yours. But there's also, so even though there was some condition on that and time periods, there's also an unconditional aspect to that promise, to that covenant. God promises he will eventually restore Israel to his people, right? 
So you might be sitting out there saying, why did God keep making new covenants? Why are there a need for new covenants? Why are some of them conditional and some of them unconditional? Why do some apply to us and some only apply to Israel? Were the old ones not good enough? Is that why we have the new ones? But we want you to know for sure that all the covenants were good enough. They were, they were exactly what they needed to be. God revealed his plan in different ways, at different times, and through different covenants. And each covenant builds on rather than subtracting from the others. So if you can, if you can believe that truth as you're moving forward, if you can believe the idea that, that, that God is building on his promises, he's not changing them, he's not taking away, it'll make a lot more sense. And so today we're going to see God's covenant with David. Okay? In it, we're going to see, uh, probably the most clear view of God's ultimate plan that he has, had made to this point in scripture. Right up to this point, he is gonna, he's gonna give some prophetic words in this that, that although they were uttered in, uh, Genesis, so Moses' time, when he was, uh, writing that, the idea of a savior coming is gonna be evident here in the Davidic covenant. So we're gonna be talking about the covenant given to David, but also the new covenant that is through Jesus Christ. So again, God makes his home among his people is important to know. It allows us to hear the truths that we're going to hear today and know that he was always interested in us, right? And not just um, a, a religion. It's always been about relationship, Okay, and we're going to see that here, especially in what he says to David. So that's enough of the intro. Let's dive into this. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, it reads, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See how I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We find ourselves in this time. I mean, you, if you remember back into First Samuel and then, of course, into, into Second Samuel, David was on the run. Saul was hunting him down. God had said, David, you're going to be the next king. Saul, instead of stepping out of the way saying, yeah, I screwed up royally, he kept fighting to stay in office as long as he could. He wanted his children to come after him. I mean, it's been a battle. David's been on the run. And now we've kind of turned the, the corner. David originally was king over part of Israel and then all of Israel. And, and we see here in chapter 7 that the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. He was starting to settle into a routine, right? And David rightly recognizes that his prosperity, everything that he had going for him was due to the Lord's goodness to him. Okay. His tender heart is on display as he recognizes uh, the disparity between the house that he's living in, right? He says, I'm living in this house. I dwell in this house of cedar. And yet the Ark of the Covenant, where the Lord resides here on this earth, is in a tent, 
right? The house of God. And so we, we see him have this desire. He's like, hey, I want to build this house for God. And he tells Nathan the prophet, right? Now, this is a guy that's going to play a, a key role in David's relationship to God, much like Samuel did for Saul, right? So we're lear- we, we learn of this new character uh, that we're going to see here for a while in 2 Samuel. One thing we notice this week, though, is, is when we were reading this, nowhere does it say... Nathan inquired of the Lord, or Nathan sought the Lord, or Nathan prayed to God. He said, go and do what's in your heart, for the the Lord is with you, right? So we don't see him going to God about this, because from what David said, he said, hey, I want to build a a temple or a house for God so that he's not in this tent anymore. Sounds like a great idea, right? Now, I got to admit, I've been guilty of stuff like this before. My kids would come to me, they'd give me an idea, and I'd be like, oh, that sounds great, but I don't have all the information either about the situation or I haven't gone to my wife yet and asked her for her thoughts or her insights, right? And I've been like, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And then all of a sudden, as I get all the information... I realized, ah, man, I opened my mouth too soon, right? I go and talk to Gwen, and she's like, oh, but that's not going to work because of this, 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 and this. And I'm going to be like, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize all those things. And I've already promised the kids or said to the kids, hey, we can do this. And and, and, and so it's kind of weird, right? It gives me a little bit of that tension, right, and, and, and stuff. And I, I thought I had all the information, but I was wrong. And so we can assume here that Nathan didn't have any ill will. He just thought he knew God's answer probably, Right? It didn't seem like this would be a problem that needed to be rectified or that he would need to pray about or seek the Lord about. David's heart seems to be pure in his motivation. I'm living in this beautiful house of cedar. We got to do something about this tent that God is residing in. But God wastes no time in letting Nathan know that this was not his plan for David. Verse 4 says, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Right? So God, God comes to Nathan that night. We see that he doesn't waste any time. And he starts off by saying, hey, tell my servant David a message. Okay, uh, we already said this is one of the longest monologues that God is going to give, and, and he's entrusting Nathan the prophet to give this to David. God's going to refer, uh, re, uh, refer to David as his servant twice uh, in this oracle. And, and again, I don't think that God is doing that to say like, hey, I'm God, you're my servant, like get down where you're supposed to be, you know, humiliate you or anything like that. On the contrary, I I think we've seen this term used elsewhere in speeches by the Lord to refer to an honored or faithful patriarch. So I hope as you hear this, you don't hear that that, that God is somehow trying to put David in his place, but there is some correction that's going to be going on right here. 
So even though uh, God has to say no, God is not saying it, that somehow David has fallen out of graces. It's just not for him. So the, the first question uh, gives David this emphatic no. Look at what he says there. Would you build me a house to dwell in? It wouldn't be David. We know that. You and I know that. Uh, if, you've, if you've studied through uh, Samuel before, you know that. Or you probably just know because a lot of people talk about Solomon, his son, building this temple for God, right? But so we know that this answer goes along with what actually ended up happening. Um, and he says, no, you're not going to build me my house, God's second query, though, even questions the desirability of anyone building a permanent structure for God. We thought this was really interesting. We do think that down the road and when the temple's built, that was God's plan. That's what he wanted. But he said, did I ever ask for a house from anyone? Did I ask the judges who led Israel to build me a home? Why would you all of a sudden think that I need one? On the contrary, God says, I have been moving about in a tent since the day that I, God, brought you up out of Egypt, right? I brought my people out. God's desire was to move among his people, right? And we saw that all the way back in Genesis, Right. If you're taking if you're taking notes today, write down uh, uh, or re- refer back to Genesis um, in in your notes there. And, and there was a there's a passage there where God talks about um, walking amongst the garden with Adam and Eve. Right. And so right away that popped into my mind. Uh, I think it starts in 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 oh yeah in verse eight here. I actually wrote it down here. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, amongst the trees of the gardens uh, of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? When this happened, they didn't go and hide in the bushes because it was odd for God to be walking amongst the, the, the trees and the bush and the brush and the, in the garden be down on earth with them. This is something that, that again, historians have looked at and said there was an, an exchange and a relationship with God that took place on this earth. God's desire was to be with his people. And we see that all the way back in Genesis. At this point, God's less concerned about his house, right? The, the wood, right? The carpet, what's in it, than he was about his people. So again, when I asked earlier, what's the difference between a house and a home, that's where I want our minds to kind of go to. Elsewhere in the Bible, we do find out that David was not going to be the one to build the temple for a couple of reasons. In 1 Kings 5, verse 3, uh, it said that David was too busy waging war for the Lord to build the temple. And then in 1 Chronicles 22 and chapter 28, it said that David had shed too much blood as a warrior to be the one to build the temple. So again, what's going on here at the beginning of the, uh, this chapter, chapter 7, is, is verified in other places in Scripture. That although God wanted David as king and as leader and as ruler of Israel... He did not want him to do this. God clearly asserts that if he, if and when, I should say, he wants a permanent tabernacle, a temple, a place for him to reside, that he's going to make that happen himself. 
Don't worry, though. God is not done. See, originally, I tried to set you up with the idea of this Davidic covenant. We're going to talk about it, and we are just about to. This might seem like bad news to some of you. Like, man, David's tried so hard. It's kind of a bummer that God's not letting him do it. But what we're going to find out here in these next few verses is better news than him being allowed to, if he were, uh, being allowed to build the temple. First, God reminds David of what he's already done, and then God gives David two sets of promises. One set that's going to be fulfilled in David's lifetime, we're going to see, and then one set that's going to be fulfilled after his death. And and, and the spoiler, I think I've already talked about it, there are a ton of prophecies in here. So if you hear something, you go, man, I've heard that. I've heard that about Jesus before. Uh, That's someplace quoted in the New Testament. You're probably right. Because this thing is full of prophecies that apply to Jesus. Verse 8, it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. The constant focus we see here in these verses is on what God has done, okay? And this is important. We, we we're going to see probably, I, I think it's like 14 or 15 examples of God doing work. And that's so important to understand and to realize this. This is God. He is faithful and powerful, right? And that combination, I mean, really, that's unstoppable, right? If you're faithful and if you're powerful, um, let, okay, God is completely faithful. Because we may say, hey, I'm faithful sometimes, right? Or I've been faithful for a long time. Or, or I try my hardest to be faithful. Well, God is completely faithful. God is infinitely powerful, right? Some of you might say, yeah, I'm pretty strong. I can do some things, right? This morning I got asked by, uh, by Tom to help lift the speaker up onto that top, and I realized how not strong I am anymore, right? I think I'm getting weaker every day. But we, we went to hoist that thing up there, right? Well, that's the way we think of power, right? Well, God is all-powerful in that he can do anything. So he is completely faithful. He is uh, all-powerful. And we need to be reminded of those facts, right? This should give us incredible faith for the future. If these things are true and they're not going to change, we can put our faith in this God for what's going to happen in the future. And now he's going to make some amazing promises to David. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. We see first here that God says, I'm going to make your name great. Well, King David's name is great. We're still talking about King David. There's a lot written about King David. If you enjoy the Psalms, a lot of those were written by King David. But even history points back to King David, right? Not just Christians, not just us that meet on Sunday mornings that are following the Bible. No, no, no. People know about King David. God starts out by saying, hey, your name will be great. 
And through God's leader, David, he's going to give a permanent home to Israel, right? The, the days of war were nearing an end for them at that time. The promised time of peace that was ahead for David and for his people after all of these years, hundreds of years of oppression, violent men afflicting them is the term that's used there. That's going to come to a close, but only for a season, God did plant them in Israel, right? The, the promised land. And he did give them some peace during David's lifetime. So we see these promises coming to pass during David's lifetime. But you may have noticed later in the Bible and even today in the news that this peace wasn't lasting. So was God wrong in what he said? Or was there peace in time for David? And then the stuff that's talking about like eternal occupation and peace for the future, right? God's going to talk about discipline and the need for discipline here in just a few verses. So it's got that now and in the future aspect. This is part of the messianic promise. This promise doesn't just apply to David and his lifetime, but it's the promise for eternity through Jesus Christ, the true and great king of Israel. Israel will once again be at peace under Jesus Christ and that time for eternity. Remember how this started with David wanting God or to make God a house, okay? The, God turns it. He says, no, you don't get to. But then look at this next promise where we're going next. This is pretty cool. He tur- goes from one, the idea of a home to, or of a house to a home. Look at this. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, or to you, that the Lord will make you a house, Right? When we talk about the household of David, that's what we're talking about here. He'll make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? So now again, we're seeing some of these things. They could go both ways. What means, or what is he saying to David? What's he promising to David? What's for after that? Well, God says, how about this? Okay? You can't make me a home or a house to live in, but I'm going to make you a house. Right? David wanted to build this temple for God to dwell in. He felt bad. I got this beautiful palace, a cedar, and God's dwelling in a tent. But remember, from the beginning, what we were talking about, God dwells amongst his people. That's so important to remember, right? That's what we want to remember. God dwells among his people. And this promise is talking about a house or a legacy, the household of David, his children and his children's children. They're going to continue on ruling when David is dead. His legacy is going to go on. Not only that, but his offspring will get to build that house for God, the temple. We know, like I said at the beginning, that Solomon will end up building the temple for God. But here's where it gets epic. This isn't just referring to David's offspring. It's not just talking about Solomon or Solomon's kids, right? 
And it's not talking or referring to the temple that Solomon built. Those are both great things, but that's not what he's talking about. This again is about the prophecy, uh, prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. God did indeed raise up Jesus, right? To the place where he was and will be the eternal king over Israel. On earth he came and he lived and he died and he was raised up after three days. Jesus himself declared that he would build a temple. That he possessed an eternal throne. And that he possessed an imperishable kingdom. Jesus made a lot of quotes that refer back to this prophetic uh, word given by God to David. The son of David is the one, is one of the crucial titles that Jesus had and that he used. This stuff should excite you. Like if you're looking at this and you're like, man, you know, we're in the Old Testament. I can't wait to get back to the New Testament. This is the kind of passage that you need to be looking at going, this is pointing to the New Testament. This is what's being quoted in the New Testament. I don't know about you, but this stuff gets me excited. Continuing on in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline. We talked about that there would be some discipline. Discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So in the beginning of verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Again, this applies to both Solomon and to Jesus himself. There are countless texts in the New Testament that boldly proclaim the deity of Jesus. He himself knew it, and he proclaimed it. But obviously we know that Jesus committed no iniquity, nor needed any discipline. So there's part of this that's being spoken about, about David and Solomon and his children. Jesus did accept the sin of all of his people on the cross, right? But he was the sacrifice that was needed. You can't help but notice the phrase that's used there in the scriptures there that says the stripes of the son of men. There's that imagery of the cross that was used, I think, by the New Testament writers purposefully to point back to this. The flogging that took place on the night when Jesus was betrayed. Like we said before, Solomon, though, of course, would have committed sin and every king on the throne of Israel would have been a sinner up until the time when Jesus is put where he rightfully should be. So there would be a need for God to discipline Israel. You can see it's a, the, 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 the conditional aspect of the covenant right alongside the unconditional aspects of the covenant. It's talking both sides. On the one hand, where he commits iniquity, God will discipline him. But on the other hand, God says, my steadfast love will not depart from you. So we see the discipline and we see the love. We see both sides of it. 
This is the reality of the new covenant as well. We know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. That's a promise from scripture. Once we've placed our trust in him, right? Once we've placed our trust in Jesus Christ and that sacrifice, God is not going to leave us when we mess up. He loves us. However, God loves us enough to discipline us. We see that in scripture. Those of you who are parents that are believers have probably used that thought process, that concept in your home. Whatever discipline looks like in your home, the idea of disciplining your children is so that they will learn what's right and what's wrong, right? That comes from scripture. God loves us enough to discipline us, but... God, uh, our enjoyment of God's promises is dependent on our submission to God. So as we grow in Christ and we become more like him, we're able to enjoy our Christian life more as we reflect our Savior, as we become more like Jesus Christ. The fact of, of God's promises, um, the, the facts around those are so different than a promise that you and I as a human being can make. God's promises that he makes to us, that he made to David, were dependent on his faithfulness. And remember back to the beginning, I said he is completely faithful. We may give our word to someone and do our best, and we still may fail to accomplish what we have set out to do. And yet God will never do that. So God is faithful in everything that he does. The fact of God's promises depended on his faithfulness. However, the enjoyment of God's promises for you and I, it's dependent on our faithfulness, which again, isn't perfect, right? It's not perfect, but we can continue to grow in that. The author's summary words in verse 17 show that Nathan was faithful in delivering this message to David. Right? He communicated all that God had asked him to do to David. Now, let's look at what a faithful response to God's grace looks like here as we close out this chapter. Starting in verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. I love David's awe-filled questions, right? This is an awesome response. He's like, who am I? Right? He sees himself as God sees him. Who am I? What, what more can I say to you? Remember that God's words were, were just filled with these actions that God will do, right? God is going to do something, right? And he, he gives that like 14 or 15 times there. David's response to God echoes God's doing, and he does it about the same number of times. It's incredible. David's response is beautiful as he sees what God is promising to him. His first question shows humility, right? He's like, I am no one. My family is nothing. And yet, God, you saw fit 
to bring me the word there that David uses thus far. He acknowledges, I was a shepherd, I was nothing, but because of your faithfulness, because of your power, I mean, remember all the way back to when David fought Goliath, right? His confidence was in God, not in what he could do, but in the God of Israel. And as I read this this week, and I prayed about this verse particularly, and I was, I was, I was just kind of pondering this, I, I started to think, is this true of my life? Right? Does my strength, does my power, does everything that I do and, I, and that I'm able to accomplish come from the Lord? From my confidence in him? I think that's where David's at. And when he says, and yet this was a small thing, the meaning behind this is, and, and you are going to even do more. You're not even done yet. David has confidence in what God can do. Remember, this started out David saying, hey, I want to build you a house. And God's like, no, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to make you a household. And here are my promises. And after hearing all that, David says, yeah, you took me from nothing to where I'm at today. And you can continue on to do greater things. That's what David is saying here. And, and, and again, it's beautiful. David calls uh, God Lord God four times just in these couple of verses. And I think it's uh, seven times total in this text. The idea of Lord Yahweh, it's like sovereign God. I trust you. I believe you. I know you are faithful. You are powerful. And that's what David believed in his heart. God is in charge, right? God's in charge of David's life. God's in charge of all life. He alone is the Lord. He alone is sovereign. And I love how David says this here. He says, and this is instruction for all mankind. I think I breezed over that before when I've read this passage. Just like blown right past it. But it's like David, full of faith, sees that these words, right? This message is not only going to be important for him, but for all mankind, Right? He instantly puts the words of God, right, on par with the Holy Scriptures of old that he would have had, that he would have known of Moses' writings, right? He's like, these are that important, if not even more so. He continues on with his awestruck praise here in verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. David recognizes where God's grace comes from, right? He recognizes that. Where? From God himself. His promise, his heart, his bringing it about. He knows that God is going to do this. Every other God, the God from the, the gods, I should say, lowercase g, from the nations around, always said, hey, perform and I might bless you. Perform and I may come to your aid. Right? That's, that's what, I mean, it's kind of common even today. A lot of, a lot of gods are like, hey, if you're good enough, you'll probably reach nirvana. You know, if you can do enough good, you might get this or that. But God says, I will perform and bless you because of my love and grace. That's the same thing he says to you and I today. 
The grace of God coming to you, his mercy on your life, his blessing has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him, his faithfulness, his goodness, his power. David says, there is no one like you and there is no God beside you. There is so much truth in what David is saying here and the way that he moves forward in it. Verse 23, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them a great and awesome, uh, great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. David recognizes the unique nature of God in that he dwells amongst his people. David recognizes that. He sees that. He knows that. Even though he wanted to build a temple for him, a beautiful place that he felt God deserved to be in, David recognized that God dwells among his redeemed. Right? He delivered. He ransomed. He rescued. He bought. He brought out Israel to be his people. You and I, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are grafted into that family through the new covenant. You and I, he wants to dwell amongst us. That's why when we read the New Testament, we read about the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. And we talk about the Holy Spirit. We know you're here today. Help us to hear from you. That's the idea. That's the concept. That's the truth that God dwells amongst his people, you and I, in a special way. This is what he's done for us in this new covenant. He redeemed us. He brought us back. He paid the ransom. He rescued us from death. Even when we were dead in our own sins, Christ died for us and made us alive in him. He brought us from death to life. And now we, you and I, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, are grafted into his people forever. I mean, that's the truth. That's the reality. And that's what David is seeing here. It's God who does the work. It's God who brings you in. It's God who allows you to be a part of. And he praises God for that. And through the testimony and redemption of his people, he has received glory. His name is forever praised. After awe, humility, and praise, watch how bold David becomes at the end of his prayer. Now, this isn't sinfully bold, but this is boldness that comes from faith. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. 
and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David essentially says here, in these last verses, he says, you said it, and I believe it, make it so. Right? He acknowledges, okay, let me step back from what I offered to you, God. I've heard you, I believe you, and now I'm trusting you. How often in our life do we get, do we not allow those three things to take place? Right? We know what God says in his word, but we just don't believe it could be true for us. We don't know what it would look like in our lives. Or it doesn't happen on our timetable, so we stop believing. We stop trusting. And yet David says, you said it, I believe it, and I'm going to trust you to make it so in your time. Kevin and I, as we were finishing up this sermon and we were talking about this concept, we remembered an old song. I'm not going to sing it for you. I don't, I don't want you guys to leave with that in your mind. But it is God said it and I believe it and that settles it for me. Right? It was in the old chorus hymnal at Central Baptist Church in the late 80s. Right? I remember that song. God said it and I believe it and that settles it for me. And yet that's what we see David That's what we see his words pointing towards, and we see his life pointing towards. That's the theme of the end of David's prayer. Is that where you are at today, friends? God said it. I believe it, and I'm trusting him to make it so. In David's mind, it's as good as done, because God said it, period, Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. This, this, this courage that David found came from God. He's given these great promises. And David says, I believe you. I will trust you. Why? Because you said it. I don't need any more proof. You don't need to prove it to me. I can stand on the promises of God in Christ Jesus. In our lives, God has promised that our sins may be forgiven by the grace that was extended to us by Jesus Christ on the cross. He has promised that Jesus Christ is everything and that our lives in Jesus Christ, we can have everything that we need for life and godliness. Not everything we want, that's not what the scriptures say, but everything that we need He's promised that no matter what this world throws at me, that I have eternity waiting for me with God. Do we live our lives with that in view? That no matter what's happening to us right now, no matter how good it is, no matter how bad it is, that eternity in heaven with God is waiting for us? Through Christ, you and I, we will be blessed forever too. I want my prayers to be as courageous and, 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 and faith-filled as David's response to God's promises. As we look at lessons from leaders, we need to remember that God makes his home amongst his people. Now, this isn't a, a sermon against 
uh, churches, church buildings, places to go to and worship. Not at all. But we want you to remember that he doesn't need a house. He doesn't desire a cedar building. What he desires is you and me, his people, in a relationship. And that's what he desired then, and that's what he desires now. And our response, you and I should respond in awe. Not only on Sunday mornings when we're here, when we can sing and, and, and pray, but all week long do we live in response to that. Can we live a life that reflects that through praise and through our faith?